This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. To say that Deborah Mugar is prolific is an understatement. Not only has she penned 20 very well-received novels and two collections of short stories, but she's also a highly regarded screenwriter. Several of her own books have also been adapted for the screen, including Tulip Fever and These Foolish Things, which became the box office hit The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. Her latest novel, The Black Dress, picks up on a favourite theme of hers, Love in Later Life and is a joyful social comedy, crackling with warmth, humour and blistering home truths. Before I introduce Deborah, let's meet the protagonist of The Black Dress, Prue, who's coming to terms with being suddenly single at the age of 70. It was a sort of madness. I realised that at the time. How could a woman like me be capable of such a thing? But I'd been horribly betrayed and was reeling from the shock. I was in free fall, all the branches cut off, nothing to catch me as I fell. And I was insanely lonely. That's no excuse either, but maybe you've never been there. Howling loneliness, month after month. I was alone when the lawyer's letter arrived. No Greg beside me to look at those words wiping out our life together. What's this all about? Leave it to me. It must have come to the wrong address. I was alone when the car broke down on the North Circular Road at one in the morning. When a gutter got blocked and water ran down the walls. When a plumber ripped me off and my laptop crashed. I was alone when a rosy-cheeked vet arrived. Just married, she told me, to put down the dog. I played Joni Mitchell. That song about her lover sniffing his fingers as he watches the waitress's legs. Sydney's head lowered and rested, a dead weight in my lap. So that was it. I was 69 and alone for the first time in my life. My friend Azra said, Good sodding riddance. Greg was a tosser. I can say that now. You're not too old to find another man. Go to the park. There's plenty of them there, walking their dogs. I haven't got a dog anymore. You've still got his lead, haven't you? Walk about calling Sydney, Sydney. Somebody's bound to come and help. Deirdre Rubenstein, narrating The Black Dress, written by my guest, Deborah Mugger which is produced and published by Belinda Publishing. Debbie, welcome to My Life in Books. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. As we've just heard, Prue and her husband have separated and she's not so much missing him as her life in a couple. It's proven quite difficult for her to adjust. It's a consideration you return to in several of your books and uh, clearly something you like exploring. Yes, I've I've been looking through some short stories that I've written throughout the last sort of 40 years because they're being reissued. And I've been banging on about this for years and years because I've had intermittent periods when I have been on my own. And, you know, I'm now on my own having bailed out of marriage number two, a little bit older than Prue. I'm 73. And I'm interested in how one copes. And I'm also interested in my terrific envy of couples who seem to be together, particularly couples who've had long marriages. And I see them, you know, hand in hand, taking the grandchildren to Alton Towers or buying their statins together and going to the cinema together and all the things that couples do of long-standing um, coupledom. And um, I'm just interested in how women of my age sort of work their way through this because it's happening to a lot of us um, for better or for worse really and there's many things to be said for it and Prue in the book Prue tries to make the best of it but she's a lot more 
neurotic and difficult than I am and more depressed really actually because I'm naturally rather bouncy but I'm still interested in women of my age and what happens to us really. And Prue is so disconcerted by her newfound single state that she attends a funeral and only finds out halfway through that she's actually turned up too early for the funeral that she's meant to be at. And this sets in train a rather interesting way for her to explore the social side of being a single 70-year-old. The interesting thing about funerals, one of the many interesting things about funerals, is that the people who attend them are so disparate because if one's had a long life, one's had many different lives during that, that long, long stretch. And there'll be people you've known at school or somebody you worked with or somebody you had a little fling with or a friend of a friend or the daughter's parents. I don't know, lots and lots of people. And we often have several different careers nowadays as well. So a funeral gathers together a very motley bunch of people. And so what happens with, with Prue, my heroine, is she goes to the wrong funeral because she gets the time wrong and doesn't realise it's the wrong funeral, even though she doesn't recognise people there, because she thinks that that is the reason that, you know, is they're just people from another walk of life from her friend. And when she realises it's the wrong funeral, we've probably all almost done this. I mean, at Golders Green Crematorium in London, near where I live, you're in and out in half an hour. They, they run a very tight ship. And if, you know, if you're a bit early or a bit late, you might easily find yourself in, in the wrong little chapel. But what she then decides to do, because she's in a rather predatory mood, she's very hurt that her husband's bailed out. And he's bailed out without any very strong reason, which is even more hurtful. He doesn't seem to have fallen in love with anyone else or anything that would make sense. And that, that is more discombobulating for her. So two things collide, really. She's, she goes, I shouldn't laugh at my own jokes, but anyway, she's, she's walking past a, um, a, a charity shop and she sees a black dress hanging in the, in the window and she goes in and buys it. And she then wears it as a mourner to the funeral of somebody she doesn't know because she decides that really a place to nab a, a bloke is at his wife's funeral. <laughs> Um, because if he's any good at all, if he's if he's sort of, you know, sound of wind and limb, he'll be snapped up. She's got a best friend called Azra, who is a very independent spirited woman and thinks prudence ridiculous to want a bloke. Um, but she says, well, if she does, go funeral hopping, find out the dates of funerals, which you can in some local newspapers still. And if it's the man, you know, it's the right sort of age, Pop along there and make yourself known to the husband and maybe he'll fall in love with you. It is a very long shot, one could say, and pretty outrageous and pretty, as I said, predatory. But it's kind of fun and Prudence, Prudence approaches it as a sort of joke, really, and as something to do. But she knows that it's quite weird and it's, it's borderline sociopathic, actually. But she tarts herself up, nothing ventured, nothing gained, and trots off and at the very first funeral she does strike lucky because the grieving widower is a very uh, attractive vet from Hendon who takes a shine to her but of course what she has to then do is to cobble together a whole lot of lies about how she knew this man's dead wife and anyway that what goes terribly wrong but it doesn't put her off and she she sort of gets obsessed with it she has a strong streak of obsession in her which again I, I don't really have but um so it lands her in quite a dark place and then there's a humongous plot twist in the middle where we discover something that throws everything into another direction completely and I rather like doing that with my books because I, I like to do a sort of marmalade dropper if people are mm. reading it at breakfast and it gets quite dark and it, and it becomes a sort of thriller really well, yes. I mean, your books are always a wonderful mix of farce and thriller. And what could possibly go wrong? Oh, that. <laughs> and <laughs> I think what I also love about your books is they are the kind of strange stories that we pick up from our local newspapers. I, I can imagine reading a story about a woman who goes along as a 
almost professional mourner at funerals. Are you a, a keen reader of the local newspapers or did these ideas come to you at two o'clock in the morning when you can't sleep? Well, I am a keen reader of local newspapers, which I adore. I'm probably the only person in Britain who still reads local newspapers, um, which is a bit tragic. But I don't always get my ideas from them at all. I get my ideas from weird moments where two, two things juxtapose and there's a little bit of an electric charge. I mean, again, looking at these short stories, I remember once being asked by a newspaper to write a Christmas story. And I'd been recently swimming with my son, who was then a little toddler. And in the local baths in the changing room, there was a plastic crib thing. And he asked what it was for. And I said, it's for changing babies. And I saw his little face go quite transparent because I could see what he thought. You know, if he was put on this thing, would he be changed for another child? And so I linked that with the Christmas story of Jesus in a crib and a child whose parents were recently divorced and who was rather upset about that and confused. And so that's the idea of two disparate ideas. I get them from things I see in the street. I get them from things people tell me, occasionally things in newspapers. But I mean, one book, Tulip Fever, I wrote, that stemmed from my buying an old Dutch old master painting and looking at it and thinking myself into the into the painting. We'll come on to talk about tulip fever a bit later in the show because your books are a, a wonderful social commentary on the idiosyncrasies of well, especially middle class people and also a hefty sideswipe at times at some of the political policies that are maybe not serving our social care system in the UK quite as well as they should. Well, it's true that I write a lot about children, children that are lost to divorce or to abduction or to kidnapping or all sorts of things. I suppose because my greatest fear is something happening to my children who are now hefty great middle-aged creatures and mid-40s, which is, but it never, it never goes away. My books are so different, it's difficult to categorise them, but the, mm. the, the, the domestic, as you said, the sort of middle-class domestic thing runs through quite a lot of them, and some are outright funny. I mean, I've written a, a, one called Heartbreak Hotel and one called The Ex-Wives, and to some extent The Black Dress and another one called The Carer. They, they have quite a lot of laughs in them, and they do touch on social issues, as you said, a, a lot nowadays, actually, about the elderly. The carers about, indeed, a carer for an old man. And, of course, the best exotic marigold hotel, which was an idea that came to me not by buying a painting or seeing people in the street or reading newspaper. It was thinking about how we're all going to be looked after when we're old, because there's not the money to look after us. And why not outsource us somewhere cheap and warm and lovely, where we might be a lot happier? So social issues are there and they're sometimes quite central, but the ideas come, you know, it's, it's really difficult to know where they come from sometimes. Mm. You mention Heartbreak Hotel and the black dress and these foolish things which became the best exotic marigold hotel. They are all exploring the romantic misadventures that we can have later in life, even though we perhaps should know better. And again, there's a sense in your books that it's never too late to have another go. Well, I, I just find that in my life. I certainly am not cynical. You, you know, I'm up for stuff and I'm, as I said, 73. And I mean, I got married again 10 years ago. I'm now, I've now divorced him, but, but, you know, I was up for that. I mean, I think the interesting thing is that old age has changed so hugely in that us lot, you know, we're baby boomers. We you know, took lots of drugs. We had a high old time. And now we're supposedly old, but we're not behaving like old people. And maybe throughout history, people who I used to consider old, like over 65 or something, they were completely different people than I thought. They weren't just sitting by the fire knitting and things. And I think that the success of the Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, particularly the film, is the fact that 
it it realized that you know 75 is can be the beginning of a whole new adventure if you're up for it and that the other thing which i think is more subtle but is so true which is you're exactly the same person you've always been the same resentments joys passions jealousies everything you've just got a few more wrinkles and aches and pains and that was very cheering for people in a way because an awful lot of books about old people are about incipient death, you know, dementia and strokes and God knows what. And of course, films are. You see somebody of 80 in a film and, you know, you presume they're going to die with their gnarled hands clutching the duvet and everyone gathered around the bed before the film is out. But, you know, in the best exotic, only one person does die. Mm. They're, they're actually starting another life. And I think that that gave people hope and it's changed. There's been a sea change in the way old age is, is dealt with in films and books and the culture in general. And I think that The Best Exotic was a bit of a trailblazer actually in that respect. And I'm rather proud about that actually because I'd, it also caused a lot of people to have a good time in the cinema. <laughs> There's a wonderful line that you wrote in an article when it comes to matters of the heart, we're all still 15 years old. And I think the, the, the way you juxtapose your 70-year-old protagonist with the fact that she is still making exactly the same misjudgments about romance or still stressing about the fact that he hasn't called, the same as she would have done 55 years beforehand. As you say, it shows that the person underneath has not changed, even if outwardly they've got a few more grey hairs and wrinkles. Absolutely. I mean, I've got various friends of my age who have hung up their spurs and they've just retreated from any form of romantic engagement. But I've got lots of friends who, who haven't. And I think that, you know, demographically, it's it's interesting because there are, uh, back to what I was rather saying at the beginning, there are a lot of older women, you know, who are on their own because their spouses or partners have copped off with a younger woman or discovered they're gay or whatever. Um, and it's how we deal with that. And the LOL thing, you know, late onset lesbianism, which seems to have happened to quite a lot of people I know, is is one way maybe of finding love again, you know, of somebody who who's your own age. I mean, most men I know, actually, if they bail out of a marriage or partnership, it's it's usually a woman 12 years younger, just so that they do have some shared experience and they'll know what they're talking about. But they also are young and lovely firm bodies and they give them the possibility of this other life with a youthful person, which is, you know, staggeringly thrilling. And I totally understand it. I mean, I was with somebody for seven years who was 15 years younger than me and it was absolute heaven um, because their youth just put a spring in one step it was lovely and actually we certainly see that with Prue when she puts on the black dress it does show off her figure she does feel younger she is more equal to the world of dating and relationships than in her housecoat Absolutely. I mean, there's a good reason that the fashion industry is a multi-billion pound industry, which is that clothes affect us and we can recreate ourselves according to what we're wearing. So that's what she finds with it. Absolutely. Well, as far as that mantra of it's never too late in life to embark on a new adventure is concerned, the book that probably encapsulates it best we've already touched upon, The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, and we will come on to discuss it in more detail after the break. Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844 844- one two two one 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 one. Welcome back to My Life in Books. This week I'm in conversation with Debbie Mogar, author of The Black Dress, Tulip Fever, and the book that became the best exotic Marigold Hotel. Debbie the book was published in 2004 under the title These Foolish Things. 
the title of a rather lovely song from, I think, the 1930s? It's one of my favourite songs of all time because it's about regret and nostalgia, but it's not at all bitter. It's generous-spirited about a past love affair, which I absolutely love. And it's a title, really, that could apply to practically any novel you think of because, really, we're all human beings and we're all strange creatures and these foolish things is what we're pretty well doing all the time, I think. So I I could have applied it to practically any of my books, actually. And yet it had a different name applied to it when it was adapted into a feature film in 2012, and it was called The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. What was the reasoning behind that? Well, I don't really know, because I wrote the script and then I was replaced by someone else. And at some point in the transfer... They changed the title. And actually, I think it's great. I, I, I think it's a wonderful title. So we went back and renamed the book that. I got one or two disgruntled emails from people saying they'd gone and bought the book and they realised they'd read it already. And we hadn't mean, meant that to happen. But it has a sort of exotic bounciness, which is eye-catching. It's just great. It's a really, really nice title. We were talking about exploring where older people fitted in in society. And the premise behind this book is just so deliciously clever. Could you remind anybody who might have forgotten and let anybody who hasn't been introduced to the book or the film know what that premise is? Well, the premise is that we're all living longer because the miracles of modern medicine, you know, haul us back if we get ill, how on earth is the state going to cope with all these ageing, ageing people? And so what I thought was, we outsource everything else. Why not outsource the elderly? And why don't we outsource them somewhere warm, very good for arthritis and stuff, and it's nice being warm, sunny, even lovelier, cheap. So it would have to be a sort of developing country somewhere possibly with a link to Britain. Anyway, India, as you see, is slowly coming along Mm. in my head. English is hugely spoken in India. And there's a respect for the elderly. And this is something which I felt very strongly about. And it touches slightly on what you were saying, Red, about social conditions. Um, The treatment in Britain of older people is completely scandalous. And it's partly a cultural thing in that families are scattered and children have gone off to work somewhere else and nobody particularly stays behind to look after old parents anymore you know in Jane Austen's time there'll be a sacrificial sister who'd who'd not get married and who'd look after the parents that's long ago been lost and in India there's still a huge respect for older people they're big extended families living together the old granny and the granddad will be around and how nice that is for the granny and granddad and for the grandchildren. Anyway, you can see these huge, huge list of reasons. So it seemed an absolute no-brainer to me. And so I just thought actually it would make a wonderful novel because I know India quite well because I lived in Pakistan for two years back in the 70s. And I'd been to India since then quite a lot. Um, and I know they're two different countries, but they're some you know quite a lot of things in common and I'd written books and indeed a tv drama set in Pakistan and I'd been a journalist there so I felt quite confident in writing about India and so I thought I'll make up six or seven old age pensioners in England I'll get all these characters together um, very disparate characters and for various reasons they are out in the cold in some way. They've, their residential homes being closed down. The children can't have them living with them for all the reasons we know children can't have parents living with them or they've gone to live abroad or whatever. Their spouse has died and they're lonely. They've had to sell their home because they haven't got any money. All sorts of reasons. And I thought I'd send them to India. They'll be lured there by the brochure for a very romantic, lovely bougainvillea draped hotel with monkeys and parakeets and sunshine and they will find that actually it's not quite all it was cracked up to be and that India itself is not at all what they expected and it will have a magical effect on them in some way or another they will end up differently than they began because I wanted to explore the 
contradictions and the beauties of this extraordinary country and the effect it'll have on these people. And there's a real sense of liberation for all the OAPs who go out to the hotel. There's there's a wonderful line in the book. Unlike the word retirement home, the word hotel still has possibilities. And they do find possibilities and new life through change. And I know that you've written about how you were liberated as a writer by the time that you spent in Pakistan. It's when your writing career started. It seems to be a place of limitless possibilities in comparison to the England that all these people have come from, where doors are being closed in their face with every year that they get older. Yes, absolutely, Red. That's exactly it. And the way we treat older people, which is to shove them out of sight and out of mind in some retirement home, you know, overlooking a ploughed field on the outskirts of Woking or something, you know, it's it's not a great way to go, not, not a great way for the last bit of your life. And I also thought that actually your grandchildren will visit your site more, with more alacrity in India, where, you know, you can get scandalously cheap flights, and they can have a holiday in Goa thrown in and visit you. And they'll probably come come a lot quicker to India than take a rather expensive train down to Worthing on a wet Thursday afternoon. So, you know, one of the characters said, you know, I, I was waiting to die and now I'm starting to live. And, and it's happening. I mean, the fascinating thing is that I'm not saying they got it from the book, although there, there are one or two people in India I know who, who are slightly following this idea. But retirement homes are opening in Thailand, in India, and people have gin and mango juice and play golf and lounge by the swimming pool, and it's one long holiday. And it's rather great as long as you are not homesick for your family back home. And as I said, with any luck, they'll come out and visit you just as often as they visit you in some miserable retirement hotel. Well, I was going to say, given the choice between Woking and Bangalore, I think I will be booking my ticket to, mm. uh, to <laughs> a warmer climbs. Um, we, we touched earlier also on your book, Tulip Fever, which I know you said is your love letter to 17th century Dutch painting and also was written in what you call a rush of emotion. It, too, has a wonderful story behind it. Could you share that with us, please? Well, I bought a Dutch painting at a Christie's auction. It was sort of £5,000. It was quite a lot of money, but it but it, it wasn't a Vermeer, you know, or something that, that would be impossible. And it was a painting, I fell in love with it, because it, it was a painting painted during the time of Vermeer, very Vermeer-ish. And it was of a woman getting ready to go out. And she's sitting in a room and her maidservant is bringing her a necklace and the manservant's bringing her a glass of wine. And she's looking out of the canvas at us with a rather ambiguous expression. And I just adore that period when you say it's a love letter. I think we all love that period because for a very short time in the Dutch Republic, painters started painting these domestic scenes of quiet drama and the drama was all the more because it was so understated. So you've got a you know woman playing the virginal and a maid sweeping the floor and a man, you know, giving her a glass of wine. And you wonder what's going on. And that if you blink, they might start moving off into the painting and you could follow them. So I looked at this painting and I wondered where she was going. And I was on a panel talking about turning books into films. And I I suddenly said my perfect thing would be to walk into a Dutch painting. And I realized I wanted to literally walk into this painting I'd bought and it would tell me its story. And so I made up this plot in a great rush, as, as you said, a rush of love. I was also living at the time with this person younger than me, this, this Hungarian painter and madly in love with him. And he, he was creating a Dutch painting interior around me as I wrote the book because I, I just bought an old house and he was doing it up. We'd go out at night and raid skips for wood and he'd 
panel rooms with old doors and make open fires and all sorts of things while I was writing the book. And so I felt I was living in a Dutch painting as well. He, he was building you a set. He was building me a set. And, yeah. you know, 20 years later, when the film was shot, I walked into a Dutch painting myself as an extra. I was dressed up as a Vermeer-type extra. It was absolute heaven. Um, but anyway, what happened was I researched that period mostly through paintings, and I made up this plot, which again has a big, humongous twist in the middle that throws everything all over the place. But within a week of it being finished, I got a call. My agent got a call from Steven Spielberg saying he wanted to make it into a film. I also had calls from many other directors, big, big directors and production companies in Hollywood because I think the plot was very, very visual. And that period hadn't been made into a film at all. There was a film about Rembrandt with Charles Lawton a squillion years ago, Tracy Chevalier's Girl with a Pearl Earring, which was a much smaller film as far as budgets and things went. That hadn't yet come out because my book was before that. And so it was the most thrilling thing because, you know, I was flying out to Hollywood. I was writing the script. I was meeting Spielberg. And I thought, how extraordinary that I just bought this, this painting. And it's led me into this huge adventure. And the film was put together. It was all going to come out 20 years ago. And it was about a young woman who's married to an older merchant in Amsterdam in 1630. And she falls in love with a young painter who comes to paint their portrait. And they want to run away together. And they, at that time, there was this mad, mad craze on gambling on tulip bulbs, which took the whole of Holland by storm. And for two years, people made huge fortunes and lost huge fortunes because they were gambling on what colour petals the flowers would have and whether they would be striped or not. And it was, it was bonkers. And they gamble on this and it all goes terribly, terribly wrong. And so that the visual thing of the Dutch era, which is lovely to, to paint, but also lovely to film and light and all that, plus all the costumes and everything, plus this extraordinary beauty of the tulips and a very strong plot. It had a very visual plot, made it very sought after. So it was, it was a, quite an extraordinary experience. And, but then ghastly things happened. It was a complete disaster in the end because what happened was it was just about to be shot and it was $48 million film, the biggest British film of the year. And they'd sunk the tanks to make these huge canals and they built the sets and they'd got Kieran Knightley and Jim Broadbent and Jude Law was playing the young painter. It was all ready to go. And the week before it was about to shoot, Gordon Brown, who was then chancellor, closed a tax loophole for British films and our film was destroyed. Many other films were too. And many, many people lost their livings, which was a terrible, terrible tragedy for many people. So anyway, it was a disaster. But then our saviour rode out of the sunset on his white charger, and his name was Harvey Weinstein. And he'd wanted the film anyway, but he'd been pipped to the post by Spielberg. And so, I mean, talk about out of the frying pan into the fire. He then, he then developed the film, and it was finally shot with Elisa Vikander and Judy Dench is in it and masses of people, Tom Holland, lots and lots of people. And it was very beautiful to look at, but a bit of a muddle in plot, in plot because there'd be too many scriptwriters on it. Um, but anyway, it was made, but literally pretty well. The week it was supposed to go into cinemas, the sex scandal broke and Harvey Weinstein was sent for trial and his whole company overnight um, disintegrated. So that film had a bit of a rocky time. So it never really went into the cinemas. You can watch it on a plane or on a DVD or something. But um, it, was a, it was pretty much a disaster. Proof, if we ever needed it, that truth is stranger than fiction. I would urge everybody to read the book of Tulip Fever, which is a beautiful and very compact examination of artistic endeavour, passion, greed and beauty thank you thank you yes do it also has the, the english edition has paintings in it which is really lovely because you can glance at the paintings as you read through and it makes it feel even more truthful and real and they're so beautiful anyway well you are no stranger to the world of 
TV and film adaptation, as we will come to discuss in the next section of My Life in Books. But now it's time for a break. This is My Life in Books on AMI-audio with Red Sale. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to My Life in Books. This week, I'm in conversation with Deborah Mogar. Debbie, as we've already discovered, your books are quite often adapted for TV and for the large screen, sometimes by yourself, as we've heard. And I get the feeling that you are, at heart, a dramatist who enjoys writing long-form novels. You seem fascinated by the interaction between characters. Well, I also love actors because they're so gushy and they call you darling. And I like being on sets, although it's partly incredibly boring, but it's also quite fun. And I like being an extra. I love extras because they're always sort of recovering alcoholics and they've always got such stories. So I, I'm, I like both. I mean, I am lucky to do both because if I'm writing a screenplay for television or particularly for film, it's very problematic. You often get bumped off. Somebody else comes in instead of you. You put a lot of work into it and then, you know, nothing happens. A lot of films don't get made. I've probably done 15 projects that haven't been made because the attrition rate is huge. So that can be frustrating. Although, as I said, it can be fantastic fun. And when things are really humming and something's going into production and you have script meetings, which are with people who understand the plot and who you get on with. It's it's really, really more fun than fun because you talk about the character and the trajectory of the story, and it's interesting. But because it often doesn't happen, that's jolly frustrating, and you feel you've been sitting there for a year working a very complicated plot out, and it'll never happen. So when you get a bit distempered with that, I can close the door on that and retreat into writing a novel which is a very, very private world and where you can send your characters to Honolulu if you want and nobody's going to say they haven't got the budget for it. You can go into people's, deeply into people's heads and into their past and into their hopes and their dreams. You can play around with the form. Nobody's telling you what to do because screenwriting is very collaborative for better or for worse. You know, you've got people, you're really part of a sort of group of people doing it and you've got their voices in your head and then breathing down your neck but with a novel you're in a private place and nobody mucks you about at all but when that might get too lonely because I'm quite a sociable person really if I've finished a book I can swap back and go back into writing screenplays so it's lovely being able to do both I must say I'm very lucky actually. That sense of drama and also your love of character lends itself very, very well to your books being recorded as audiobooks, and the vast majority of them have been, usually with really good narrators. I'm Obviously, you're a successful novelist which attracts better narrators, but most of them have been pitch perfect. Have you had much to do with the selection of those narrators? Well, no, not really. I mean, I have recently, for the last two books, they have sent me sort of showreels of possible actors to just a couple of them for reading. And I'll then say, well, I think that one's better than that one. But I'm not usually asked a lot. And I don't actually listen to them. I listen to Heartbreak Hotel, this um, novel of mine set in a hotel in Wales. You see, I'm a bit obsessed with hotels, really. Um, And Nicky Henson did it. And It was just so funny. I literally, I couldn't drive when I was listening to it. I had to slew into a lay-by and burst into laughter. He was wonderful. And I'm sure there have been other ones. I just don't, I sort of don't listen to it. It's not because I'm blasé. It's that I sort of know the plots anyway. And it's more that I'm worried that I won't like them. And so I don't listen to them. But you obviously have listened to them more. And I'm glad that they are good. Well, yeah, I, I certainly started off reading your books in print when I could still see well enough. Uh, to read, but uh, and I was worried, uh, you know, for for your novels and for the novels of other authors who I love. A, a bad narrator ca- can kill a book, 
but somebody is doing a very good job on selecting the uh, the narrators for all your books. Good. Well, I'm very, very glad. Very glad. I mean, I will, I will listen to them one day. I don't always get sent them, actually. As we have heard, you have a tremendous work ethic. You have been very productive through your career. And I know that you are the daughter of two authors who were both very prolific themselves. I think your father published over 120 books. Was it inevitable that you were going to become an author? Or were you, well, I've read that you were a little bit more interested in playing with toy cars and the various pets that you had. Absolutely. I didn't want to do what they did. And when I grew up beyond the, the toy car stage, I was quite a rebel. And you don't want to do what your parents do. They had, as, as you said, you know, my father wrote many, many books, at least 120, some under pseudonyms. And he did, you know, stuff in bubbles in comics. And he did very distinguished naval biographies and books that were made into films and children's books, really good children's books. And my mother wrote about 40 books. She was a children's writer and illustrator. And they were of the generation who were in the war. My father was fighter pilot. My mother was in the Wrens. And when they came out, they weren't trained for anything else. And they didn't go to college or anything. So it would be just, they were too grown up. They'd been through a war. It was too late. So they, they worked out of careers for themselves on their own bats, really. And they had really good work ethics. They, they were very modest about their work. They didn't bang on about it or say they were not in the mood or something. They just quietly retreated into the veranda when I was young. We had a veranda with a table in it and they sat at the table side by side writing these books. And I thought all parents did that. They're tapping away on their typewriters. So it was both totally ordinary, but also quite mysterious because occasionally I'd read a children's book and see something that I'd said or a drawing of my pony in it which was very magical, but it was also what, you know, I presumed every parent did. So they taught me by example, not by telling me, that you must write every day and have proper hours. You know, I mean, I work every morning. Um, I don't work in the afternoons, like lots of writers. I can't really work in the afternoon. But, you know, you can't say I don't feel like it today. They, they taught me that. But as I was saying, I didn't want to do what they did. So I trained as a teacher. I was a waitress. I did lots of other things. And then in my mid-twenties, I went to live in Pakistan, as we were talking about earlier, with Mr. Mogar, my first husband. And I just started writing because it was a huge liberation. And we were talking about that too earlier. It's, it's a liberation to be deracinated from your past. However supportive your parents might be, it makes seems to make no difference. You're away from everything that's familiar and you've got no nobody looking over your shoulder saying, you know, do you call that working or, you know, am I going to be in it or do you really think you can write a novel? You're away from all that um, in a completely strange place. And you can also see your past more clearly when you're away from it. You get perspective on it. And I could look back over my past because really all one's writing about, even if you're writing about boozy, middle-aged actors with beards and velvet waistcoats, or you're writing about coach drivers, or you're writing about a woman in, in Amsterdam in 1630, really it's all to do with your own experience and yourself because you're putting yourself in their heads and hearts. So it was my experience that became much clearer. And the first two novels I wrote one, I started when I was in Pakistan, and I was also doing a bit of journalism with, for newspapers there. The first one was terribly autobiographical. It was a sort of traditional girl coming of age at university and being rebellious and all that stuff. And the second one, I'd had two little children who were very young, and I wrote about a housewife in Camden Town, which was exactly what I was. I was living in England by then, and I couldn't imagine a life outside that because bringing up tiny children, you're very closed off from the world. In a magical way but you are and then after that I started writing things which were purely fictional the next one was about a, a male cosmetics rep with a beautiful but thick wife which actually I didn't really like very much the book but anyway it was published and so I went on from there but within them all was my own experience really and partly you put yourself in the heads of these people and they become you in a way or you become them 
And the writing gene has passed down to another generation. Your daughter Lottie is also a novelist. I know. It's so thrilling. Um, she's written three novels, all completely different to each other and different from anything I've written, which is a huge relief because I was slightly worried because I don't make a song and dance about writing and I make it seem as if it's just easy, which my parents did. And it's not easy. It's really difficult. But I, I, but it's like going on about your ailments or something. It's boring. And to go on about how difficult it is, you know, try, try having a, a real job or try having a horrible job. So I didn't really go on about it when she was little. So I was worried that she was going to have a bit of a shock when she tried to write. And she's written these three completely different novels, wonderful novels, actually. One was made into a Netflix thing and they've you know, been well received and things. And she's now on a fourth. So I'm very proud of her, really proud of her. And um, she's incredibly modest about them. My God, she's modest. Too much, really. Well, hopefully I can tempt her onto a show in the future. But for now, it's time to take another break, after which I am going to ask you to tell me about some of the books that have resonated with you through your life with the books of your life. Catch up with this and every episode of My Life in Books by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books. More from Red Sale and his guest in a moment. Welcome back to My Life in Books. Today, I'm in conversation with Deborah Mogar. So far, we've discussed the books that she's written, but now it's time to hear about some of the books that have resonated with her in the books of her life. So, Debbie, was there a book that you've read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? Well, the thing was, I wasn't a particularly reading child. You'd think that with two parents as writers, I'd be having my nose buried in a book. But I was actually rather extrovert, and I spent my entire childhood playing cowboys and Indians with one of my sisters, shooting each other dead with plastic toy guns, and reading the Beano. So the, the first books that I really loved, like many people, were William books, because Richmond Crompton was not only incredibly funny, but she didn't patronise the child reading the books, and she would use language in such delicious ways. There were words that I didn't really understand, a lot of wonderful adverbs. She was adverb queen. You know, William would say something unctuously or testily. It was just, I loved him and I loved the language. So William books, totally, totally my favourite things almost of all time. And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? I liked Agatha Christie because I liked the way her plots worked. I thought that she was such a master of plots and many, many books particularly literary novels, start incredibly well and then sort of die away. And I think that a good plot is a lovely thing. It's a work of art in itself, like a lovely kitchen where all the cabinets, you know, the drawers slide in and out with a lovely silky sound and everything fits. One wants the novel to be messed up a bit. I mean, maybe she's a little bit um, not thrilling the way she writes a sentence, but I learned a lot about plotting from her. Then I loved Pride and Prejudice partly because I then adapted it as a film. And I enjoyed the process hugely because working with Jane Austen was like cooking with the best ingredients, fresh salmon and cream and lovelinesses. And because Pride and Prejudice is really the template for romantic novels. Not that I particularly read romantic novels, actually, but it's it totally understands that passion stems from friction and from misunderstanding. And when you think that this woman who was, you know, a virginal woman who never really had a boyfriend understood about sexual attraction more than practically anybody. And it's funny. And is there a book that you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? Almost my favourite book of all time is The Siege of Krishnapur by J.G. Farrell. That's set in um, Cornpore in India in the middle of the Indian Mutiny, in the, in the middle of the um, 19th century. And 
it's the most wonderful book. It's again very funny, but it's got a group of Brits holed up in the British cantonment there whilst being attacked by the sepoys. And they are a motley bunch and not at all sympathetic, some of them at the beginning, but you really get to care about them. And it's it's exuberantly wonderful. And it taught me that you must feel empathy with people in novels because that's what novels do. They teach us largeness of spirit. Another novel, which is, this is my daughter's, but I'm doing a shout out for her because I love her and it's such a good book. Her first novel was called Kiss Me First. And it had three elements which made it a bit of a hit at the time. It was published about 15 years ago, 10 years ago. And one was it's set on the internet and it's about somebody taking over somebody's life. It was very prescient. And it was also about sort of Asperger's. The main character had Asperger's, which again, wasn't talked about. It was very prescient. And it was also about assisted dying, um, which I'm very, um, I'm a patron of Dignity and Dying. And um, my mother went to prison for helping somebody to die actually. And then telling people about it afterwards, which was not a good idea. And so those three things in that book, which is also very compulsive, made it a very prescient novel. And I was just very thrilled that she could write something so completely brilliant. Deborah Mogger, thank you so much for sharing your obvious passion for reading with the listeners today and for giving us some more great insights into your fantastic novels. It's been a huge, huge pleasure. Thank you, Red. Thanks again to my guest, Deborah Mogar and to the show's producer, Sean Priest, He and I are already working on the next episode. So don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to listen to another top author talking books. In the meantime, if you'd like to drop us a line or leaf through our back catalogue, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on... 844-971-1999 and share your favorite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this program by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.